anyone who works with data knows, you know, data is created by people. Data are created by people, if you want to be pedantic about it. And because they are created by people, they necessarily involve choices about what to count, what not to count, what to classify, what not to classify, what to include, what not to include. And then there's also a whole separate set of issues about the impact of the data, right? What is an analysis or what is the capture of this data? Who does it impact? Who does it potentially harm? What is the analysis of this data? What is the impact? Who does it potentially harm? Like you need to be thinking about human impacts always. Where does cultural innovation come from? Histories often simplify the complex shared work of creation into tales of great men and their visionary genius, but ideas have precedence and moments, and it takes two different kinds of person to have and to hype them. The popularity of influencers, past and present, obscures the collaborative social processes by which ideas are born and spread. What can new tools for the study of historical literature tell us about how languages evolve? And what might a formal understanding of innovation change about the ways we work together? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we conclude our two-part conversation with Emory University researcher Lauren Klein, co-author with Catherine D'Ignazio of the MIT Press volume, Data Feminism. We talk tracing change in language use with topic modeling, the role of randomness in data feminism, and what this work ultimately does and does not say about the hidden seams of power in society. Subscribe to Complexity wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you value our work, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us, including books, job openings, and open online courses at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. I remember when you spoke for your SFI seminar, I asked if you were applying this kind of modeling approach to contemporary corpora, trying to trace otherwise invisible contributions of like the lower decks, uncelebrated employees in modern workforces. And similarly, I'm reminded of work that Jack Shaw, who just joined us as a, a fellow, has done with our, our VP of Science, Jennifer Dunn, on trying to use food web reconstruction to identify gaps in the fossil record, you know, like to, to say like, wait a minute, like this clearly something isn't fossilizing here because we can see that there's an enormous metabolic contribution coming from this lacuna in the food web. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about this? Cause I think, you know, we've already touched on some of the stuff that, that you explore in this paper, but I'd love to hear you unpack it a little for us. Thanks. Yeah. So this is paper. It's actually, it's, it's good that it comes out of this conversation about slow academic scholarship because this is the one of the end results of a very long collaboration between myself and Jacob Eisenstein. We both arrived at Georgia Tech the same year in 2013 and he's now 
at Google, but it took almost that entire time in order to identify the corpus, prepare the corpus, <laughs> clean the corpus, clean it again, figure out what methods would yield things that were meaningful. But more conceptually speaking, this is another project that tries to get at some of these themes that, again, really sort of bring together a lot of the work that I do, which has to do with unacknowledged labor, which has to do with the paths by which change and political change in particular takes place, and then who was rewarded or recognized for that change in the outset. So what we actually do is we go back to this newspaper corpus, the same that I used for that earlier paper, um, but we look at language at the level of individual words, and we try to find who or which newspaper was responsible for innovating a change in meaning, a new meaning, um, but more, more likely, as we found, a change in meaning of a particular word. So you could think a little bit, you know, how does, uh, you know, one of the, here, I'll give an example from the paper. So the word justice um, at the beginning of the corpus in like 1820 really has this narrow legal definition. If you look at the words that, that are most similar to the word justice, you get discussions of laws and rights and the political and legal system. But by midway through the corpus, and certainly by the end, there's been this inflection where justice has taken on these more capacious connotations, like citizenship, like rights, like freedom. And you know, this is really, it's interesting and it's compelling, again, because it tracks what I was talking about before. A lot of the work that's been done to show how the abolitionist movement wasn't only about achieving legal emancipation for people who have been enslaved, but we're also redefining what it meant to live, right? And so this idea of justice, like what does justice mean? It doesn't just mean like, okay, do you get this sentence for your crime or the other sense you get a disinterested judge or not? You know, like it doesn't just mean that. Justice means, you know, everything actually that when we say like social justice now, that's what it means. And this change started to happen in the 19th century. So the first thing is like, did this change happen? Did it happen with any degree of statistical significance? Um, that was the first thing that we set out to do. And we developed a process that looked at word embeddings, actually, and how word embeddings changed over time. And also as they were associated with individual newspapers to be able to say, okay. Um, and then we did like a ton, a ton of um, error checking on this. So we ran a bunch of permutation tests. We came up with a whole bunch of synthetic data. And so in the end, the words that we said, like these definitely changed in our corpus with significance. Like I will, I we believe that now. And so first we found what these words were. And some of them were some of these really ideologically charge words like justice, like freedom, not interestingly abolition, but I think rights was another word that sort of acquired these sort of more conceptual valences. But then beyond that, we wanted to find out like, well, who was doing the changing, right? If you subscribe to this belief that words change by enunciating them, whether it's by speaking or by using them in print, they change because of how people use them. Then we wanted a way to figure out, you know, who was doing, who was leading in these changes, like who would introduce a changed meaning. Um, and then clearly if it was widely adopted by the general public or in our case, this particular corpus, like who was the next to pick it up? 
And so we actually built on a measure that Sandeep Soni, another, uh, he actually just got his PhD from Georgia Tech, he's moving on to Berkeley. He developed for another paper from a totally unrelated context about innovative language and citation counts. Um, he actually developed a method that showed that people who use innovative language in papers actually have higher citation counts. But what he was able to do is look at, look at the overall embedding for any particular word and then look at the embedding for that word that was associated with a particular newspaper um, and say, okay, if at a certain point, the specific embedding for that newspaper takes over as the one that predicts what the other newspapers, how the other newspapers will use that word, then that's a sign that this newspaper is leading the change for this particular word. And, you know, he was able to set it up so that we looked at every single word, every single newspaper, every single time period in the corpus. And then we pulled out what we talk about in the paper as the leaders in uh, semantic changes and then the fast followers of these changes. And so I guess the one last thing that I'll say about that is like, it actually did show us some interesting things and it's related to the conversation we were having earlier. Um, so Lydia Mariah Child, again, the editor of this like fairly mainstream abolitionist newspaper where she was brought on board to be more moderate, to temper the movement, to bring more people who might have been a little bit hesitant to join the cause because they perceived it to be too radical. Her tenure as editor of her newspaper is called the National Anti-Slavery Standard. Ashley was characterized, she was the editor who was had the, she was quick to adopt the most number of words. So this is an indicator that she had her eye on the discourse, um, but she never innovated. But as soon as she saw that there was this interesting new development, she would jump on it. And so that was a really interesting finding. And interestingly, the newspaper that innovated in um, the most number of words was The Liberator, which was the, news the more radical newspaper edited by William Lloyd Garrison, that he and she together recognized as like too radical to appeal to most people. So they let him innovate and she was fast to follow. And so we found in this quantitative analysis confirmation of the major dynamic that has been remarked upon in the qualitative research. But then again, the other really interesting thing, we found Marianne Shad, who I was talking about before, this black woman editor who was known, or at least felt that she was being sort of unfairly maligned for her radical views. Lo and behold, not only did she innovate ideologically, but she also innovated at the level of language. So she had many more new word usages than other newspapers of its ilk. And then the other really interesting finding, and interesting I mean in this way, by kind of like complicated and potentially bad, is that we added in some non-abolitionist newspapers in order to sort of get some outside context. So we added in some general audience newspapers and some women's suffrage newspapers because the women's suffrage movement, as I think most people know, but if not, like it sort of ran alongside the abolitionist movement. At sometimes when it was expedient, they sort of dovetailed in their aims. And then at other times, as we know now from the historical record, the white women intent on their own political franchise were quite actually racist and were very clearly willing to put their own political enfranchisement ahead of black people's actual freedom, right? found in spite of the racism that really came to characterize a women's suffrage movement, they actually innovated in a lot of words in this abolitionist discourse. And I'm still sitting with that. 
you know, trying to figure out what it, well, I guess, I think, I think, I, I think we know what it means, right? Is that we know that there's a disconnect between what people say and what they do, right? And there's some interesting, like, broad soci- theories of sociolinguistics and broad findings that have shown that, like, women tend to innovate linguistically more than men do. This has been proved longitudinally through oral interviews and hand annotation of data and things like this. You know, it also may have something to do with the range of what are called, like, women's conversations versus the narrowness of what men feel compelled to speak. I mean, there's like weird broad strokes that you could paint. You could sort of get like a broad strokes explanation for this. But I actually find that pretty unsatisfying. To me, it really shows the, like I said before, this disconnect between people who know what the politically expedient or politically correct position is to voice, and then the people who write about it in the newspapers. But then the gap between that that position as voiced and how they actually follow through with their actions. This is the grand challenge of political change, right? It's that so many more people are willing to say, for example, Black Lives Matter, but then like, what are you going to do about it? This is, I think, what academia and the country has been grappling with over the past year. It's like, okay, the first step is to recognize that we have tremendous racial inequality in our country and the world. Um, But like, are you willing as a, you know, as a white person, as a white scholar, as a white academic, like, what are you going to give up so that we can rebalance this? That's harder to do. And so anyway, so I feel like I, I actually would like to spend some more time digesting those results because I think they're pretty interesting. Yeah. So, oh gosh, there's a lot there. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing that I, I, I just want to attend to, and maybe we don't need to linger on this, but I, it's, it's fascinating is working in social media, I am just woefully disappointed with the measures by which we determine influence in society generally, you know, like somebody who's an influencer because they have a million followers. But like you just said, well, I actually, a, a lot of the people are actually just popularizers. They're not really, they're not really innovating anything. And so it seems like we need to draw on research like this in order to better understand the points of leverage and who's actually, it's easier to notice that the second person on the dance floor is the one that gets everybody on the dance floor, but you know, that kind of thing. It's like right now, the incentive structure is such that if you are one of these folks that's listening carefully, that's casting a wide net and then, you know, like popularizing a hashtag, luckily we're capable of tracing things now to identify who actually created the hashtag. But like that person historically is not rewarded. And like, even, even now it's like, this is banal, but like the people that are doing the innovation are not necessarily the people that are being approached by marketing agencies because they're not the ones with the enormous audience. And so that, like that touches back to uh, comments that you'd made a moment ago about the incentive structure in academic research and like how does somebody doing truly innovative research get funded for it like you need people that are capable of seeing things in the way that that you're you're talking about them but actually you know what one of the things i'd like to explore a little bit more with you just you know something kind of curious that you you touched on here in the results of this paper about how uh, justice goes from this concrete meaning to a, a much more abstract meaning. But you know, in other places in, in the corpus, the word equality goes in the opposite direction. The word freedom goes in the opposite direction. And it makes me wonder if there's a pattern that we can observe here that is related to patterns in, in evolutionary dynamics about the 
pressure to move from like a generalist to a specialist or back, you know, like under what contexts is a messy, broad, interoperable strategy better? And in which cases do you want something that's really like uh, precise and and attuned to a particular context? And And I'm curious how you understand these two different trajectories in the work and and what you think it's it means about the evolution of language under certain discursive constraints and so on. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought about that before. I mean, one can see how certain external pressures might make a word need to be used in a more precise way um, than it had been in the past. And I should say that one of the things that we were pretty attentive to, and I would say this is mostly the influence of Jacob, was really trying to not make claims that extended beyond the corpus. So we actually, we never used the word influence in the paper because we didn't want anyone to impute any sort of causal relationship between anything that we were implying. We just wanted to say within this corpus, this is what's going on, you know, because there's too many exogenous influences. There's too many things that could be actually at the root of some of the changes that we're seeing. All we really wanted to say was like within this corpus, which honestly is like, has a lot of the big names in the newspaper space at this time, but not all of them. That's what we wanted to do. I mean, I think that what I'll say about how language works, and this isn't really an answer to your question, but it is another interesting finding that sort of prompted, you know, one of the things about this paper is like there were a couple of steps in the research process and those corresponded to steps when in our own analysis we thought we would be done and we would have enough to say but like there kind of wasn't enough there or we found a surprising result that we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into and one of those results had to do with the fact that at some point in the process we had the embeddings we came up with the words we had a ranking you know there was a just depend because of the metric that cindy had developed with respect to leading and following we could rank them according to the strength like this word was one that you know very very clearly was one that changed to a high degree and this one changed to a little bit less of a significant degree um so we ranked them when we looked at the we actually hand read through the top 2000 words that had exhibited these changes and not very many of them were these sort of ideologically pregnant words or like these you know keywords as you might call them in the Raymond Williams approach to to culture most of them were fairly common words um you know like fought and struggled and hoped and wished and you know they were like adjectives and verbs and and yet they remained in this list of highly significant word changes, you know, once passed through all the different uh, error checking that we did. And so we were like, there has to be something here. And what this pointed to, the fact that the vast majority of these words were sort of words at the level of discourse rather than explicitly ideological keywords, was that what was changing in these newspapers was the way that people talked about political change. And in some ways, and this sort of gets at this idea of invisible labor that I was talking about in this this other paper, like you can't drill down beyond the level of discourse, you know, like you have to stop there. Like that's the base, that's the level that you can get at to say that I think what we're capturing is how this discussion took place. And we're just gonna have to leave it there and trust that it did change and that certain actors did lead in introducing changes about you know how what or how these certain concepts were discussed and this is actually in the paper what led us to try to take this aggregate view 
where we decided instead of trying to, again, like drill down into the meanings of these specific words, which I think resist any specific or indexical relation to some sort of abolitionist concept, just to say like, okay, like if this is at the level of discourse, then maybe we need to look at it at the level of discourse and do some aggregating. This was actually what led us to come up with some of the network structures that we induce and we present in the paper that led to these conclusions that I was talking about earlier about how certain newspapers like The Liberator or like The Provincial Freeman were these real leaders in terms of language. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So two more questions that I hope that we have time to, to discuss on this. And, and one of which is about the role of uh, randomization in this work. You mentioned that, you know, the sampling in the, in the first paper we discussed, the sampling process relies on random selection. Therefore, the model yields a slightly different set of topics each time the code is run. This aspect of topic modeling inference is important to acknowledge. And then in, in this paper, you explain that, that this is necessary for a number of reasons. And that to touch back on the you know comments that we'd made about honesty and journalism and so on, that this is a way of trying to help wash out bias both in the in the data and in the the approach that you're taking to it. So I'd love to hear you give a little bit on that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll say those are there's certain randomization enters the process in or it, it in two very different places in those different papers. So with topic modeling, how topic modeling works is you begin with a random allocation of words into topics, and then through an iterative process, those topics get refined. And so the idea is, you know, ultimately they converge on stable topics, but you always need to begin with a random allocation. That's just how LDA topic modeling, that's just, that's just how it works. And so two things, one is that while the topics begin with a random allocation of words, it is also true, and anyone who's worked with topic modeling knows this, they do ultimately because topic modeling as a algorithm like makes sense, they do ultimately always converge on similar topics, right? And so like if you run a topic model over a corpus, a lot of times it like in this, you know, in this, for instance, this abolitionist newspaper topic uh, corpus that like I've, you know, run uh, probably hundreds of topic models on this, like you always do sort of end up with like a cooking one and a abolition one and a war one, like they're all roughly the same. But what this also means is that it's a caution to primarily humanists who have a tendency to close read the meaning of individual words, right? You can't necessarily say, oh, because this specific word ends up as a most significant word in this specific topic, that word has unique significance within the topic. Really what I was just trying to say in that paper is we need to take the topic as the smallest unit that we can that we can analyze. I mean, it's below that, and actually similar to this question of discourse, like below that, the specific words that comprise the topic um, are slightly unstable underneath. In this paper, what we used randomization to do was as a caution against spurious correlations, right? Like it could have just been that there was, you know, like one newspaper published a lot in a very short frequency on a specific uh, topic, not topic model, but like just like issue. Um, and therefore there was, you know, there was an inflection, there was a change in the word, but really it was the result, not of like general word uses, usage, but just because there was this very specific issue that happened to involve the use of the specific word in the specific newspaper. So we wanted to guard against that. We also had the general problem of these newspapers themselves, um, or being, very sporadic or uneven in their publication history. So we had some newspapers that published the entire length of the 
span of our corpus from the 1820s to 1865 where we capped it. We had others which popped in and out for a year or two. We had some which published weekly, some monthly, some which did huge issues of, you know, 20 pages, some which only had like a bifold or broadside kind of printout. So I think we really wanted to make sure that we weren't capturing anything that wasn't actually related to the change in word usage of these specific words. And so what we essentially did, I'm trying to think of the, the specific places where this came into play. So one of the things that we did was we created a totally, uh, we created synthetic data. So we ran it, we took the same words, and actually I wanna make sure that I'm getting this right, but I think we took the same words and we assigned them to different newspapers, randomized newspapers at random time periods. And the idea was that if you ran the same model, you would not get the same measure of this word change uh, because the the newspapers had been ran the the source of it had been randomized, and instead you would see no correlation or you'd see no change because it was it was random data. And then we ran through this. I believe we did it like a hundred times. We said, okay, well, what words retained their the significant change when compared to the synthetic data? among all of these different uh, permutations of the data that we ran. And so that was a way that we were trying to guard against false conclusions from the data. And again, so I guess it all leads to the end, which is like, don't draw false conclusions from the data because you don't understand how the process works. But it was two very different deployments of randomization, one at the very beginning versus one at the end to try to guard against this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the conversation I had with Peter Dodds of the University of Vermont on the show when he was talking about looking at Twitter and how, you know, the, the approaches that he took to Twitter gave a, a much deeper understanding of, of, you know, the way that different terms are taken up into parlance and the life cycle that they have in society compared to uh, Google engrams, which is only looking at the frequencies of the words in, you know, a, a given subset of all books published. Engrams is not doing the kind of work that you're doing in, in tracing the networks of adoption, which is something that you can do on on Twitter, but then yeah, but that's actually not to the point of randomness. It's just mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. point of the the like why you must randomize so that you're not conflating. Suddenly, this appears in all of these books with or disappears with that meaning that it actually is is like the people may not be reading those books and you know like they may not actually be talking about them. right right yeah you know ben schmidt's done some great work on this showing how sort of the artifacts so because you know google engrams comes from major university libraries and he talks about how you can actually find some interesting textual artifacts that show up as spikes in like that standard google engram chart that actually just have to do with either major decision acquisitions decisions on the part of a single library or cataloging decisions. You know, I know he looks at, for instance, the zip code of Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02138, and there's this tremendous spike, you know, that you can find when you do the Google Engram graph. And he's like, no, actually, this is just when Harvard digitized all of their books pre a certain date and dumped them into Google Engrams. And because it, you know, it says like, you know, property of or acquired by, you know, Harvard University Libraries or Widener or whatever, like that's where it shows up. But his work, he actually does amazing work in general with these like, data artifacts or the artifacts in the data that actually show you a lot about the process of data creation as opposed to what you actually thought your data was capturing. So yeah, so from there, I'd like to land this conversation with a question about this, particularly like looking forward, you know, and how a data feminist approach 
grants some insight or or offers some strategy in terms of our own writing and our own content creation broadly, you know, how the media that we produce now, we can kind of reframe the process of how we produce it and how we archive it and preserve it for future analysis, you know, and, and how we might be able to build on uh, or apply your research to coming up with a more equitable database for future historians and people that are looking to use a more accurate read of history to provide better results in terms of resource allocation, uh, you know, economic policy, et cetera. How do we leave a better record for the future so that they can make better decisions? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. And I actually think it's a it's a hopeful one to end on because I actually think there are some pretty clear solutions here. I mean, I think the you know, this is something that Catherine and I say in data feminism, but I think, you know, anyone who works with data knows, you know, data is created by people. Data are created by people, if you want to be pedantic about it. Um, <laughs> and because they are created by people, they necessarily involve choices about what to count, what not to count, what to classify, what not to classify, what to include, what not to include. And then there's also a whole separate set of issues about the impact of the data, right? What is an analysis, or what is the capture of this data? Who does it impact? Who does it potentially harm? What is the analysis of this data? What is the impact? Who does it potentially harm? Like you need to be thinking about human impacts always. And I think when you start there, and again, you know, this is with an eye to, you know, ultimately doing not just more valid research, but more ethical research and more enduring research. Um, but when you think about that, there actually have been some really interesting sort of ally projects that have come out both from the CS space, also from the data journalism space, um, and also just from like the open data movement more generally, which have to do with documenting the context surrounding a data set so that it can be passed on if it should be passed on in more thorough ways than I think simply just, you know, recording some basic metadata about a data set and then depositing it in some sort of OER, an open institutional repository type situation. Um, so I'm thinking here, there's this great paper, Timnit Gebru was the, the lead author, but it's a, it's a multi-author paper called Data Sheets for Datasets. And all this is, is just a series of very thought out questions about data provenance, data collection, potential impact, potential ethical issues. Just making sure that even if you yourself might have a thought to ask this question about a data set, you should be asking these questions before you proceed at any phase of any data-related project, whether it's collection, analysis, communication, compiling, and future sharing of the data set, and so on. Heather Krauss has this great, a little bit more um, simplified approach called the data biography, which just involves adding, you know, asking like who, what, when, where, why, how about your data set in the way that journalists know how to sort of ground truth other sorts of uh, bits of evidence that they have. Bob Gradek is someone involved in civic data, and he has this idea of the data user guide. Um, but all of these approaches are roughly doing the same thing, which is to try to give more context around the data, try to build more awareness of, on the one hand, try to make it more useful in the future, but also to be aware of the potential harms of these data if they get in the wrong hands or if they're used or abused by some sort of corporation or other institution that doesn't have the interest of the people or the issue that the data is documenting, that doesn't have the, those best interests in mind. Excellent. Well, before we just 
close out on this, I, I would just like to, due to the nature of this conversation, if there are any contributors, agents to you know to this work, anyone that we have any any questions we have failed to ask, any people we have we have failed to to credit, or maybe not even human people, but just you know agencies and influences that uh, who <laughs> who should we not leave invisible before we sign out. That's a re- that's a great question. I appreciate your asking it. I think that I've named all of the co-authors on all of the papers that we've talked about. But I will say that a lot of this work, most of this work has come up through the digital humanities lab that I run now at Emory, but for a lot of years at Georgia Tech. And that involved a lot of undergraduate students passing through for semesters and years and durations of their undergraduate careers, experimenting with this data, helping me think through issues, and just sort of generally working to towards these kind of publications that you see. And, you know, it's tough, you know, again, this is sort of invisible labor because it's not directly visible, right, in these final these final papers that were published, and yet the work could not have happened without them. And actually, I'll just say, watch the skies. I'm working on this project, hopefully it will be released soon, on the history of data visualization. And one of the figures that I talk about in this project is W.E.B. Du Bois, and he, I think somewhat famously at this point, involved a lot of his students in the production of his data visualizations. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is think of a visual way that we can sort of testify to these students' contributions, even if they aren't named in the output itself. So yeah, maybe I'll I'll end there and just say, uh, yeah, thanks for this great conversation. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the space to talk about labor at the very end. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been a treat. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.